everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined by the resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? Well, I just got back from a week off, so I'm both refreshed and exhausted at the same time. I think anyone that's been on a vacation understands how that works. You are in one sense refreshed, but in the other sense, you need a vacation from your yes. vacation. And so that's kind of yeah. where I'm at. Not to mention, we've got like two weeks of school left and we're doing a trunk or treat. And so I come back to a mess of things that have to be done. Sure. So. Yeah, you really need uh, You take your vacation, then you come back and you don't have work. Yes. For a week. Your, your recovery and all of that. That would be perfect. Yeah, and on on top of that, you went to a different state, got got went and got yourself allergies. That's what happens to me every time I go somewhere else, different state and all that. So the problem is, I started getting my Oklahoma allergies. Went back to Texas. The Texas allergies hit me, and then I came back to Oklahoma. And Oklahoma is finishing up what it started. Um, so I've got two states worth of allergies working on me right now, knocking them out at the same time. So. No big deal. At least I won't get sick twice, so just once. That's, that's right. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, everybody, on the podcast today. You've already seen whatever the actual title of this episode will be. It'll be something along these lines of uh, Choiceless Choices, the Holocaust, and the story of Tamar. We're doing uh, similar to stuff we've done in the past of taking an individual's a story within scripture and unpacking it and making connections to, of course, real life things that have happened or are happening or whatever. We've done it with Hagar before. Uh, in fact, Genesis seems to be our spot for this sort of thing. I guess we've done it with uh, David Bathsheba yeah, as well. Yeah, I forgot how many times we've done something like this. and A few, and Hagar was early. And how they're all Hagar. Old Testament things, which, you know, I think shows... To me, the inspiration of the scriptures, how these stories in the Old Testament still connect to our real stories in real lives today. So, mm-hmm. there and you go. Well, uh, I, th- I think we'll see that uh, unpacked very clearly for us today. Uh, Spencer's going to be heavily in the driver's seat on this uh, particular episode. Uh, he actually wrote uh, something on this. I believe he'll read a portion of that at the end. Uh, and I'm very much a learner today with uh, all of you that are listening, just here here for the ride, here to see how well you did. Um, we'll grade you afterwards. I made an A on the paper, so I'm just saying. You should you should let me guess. <laughs> just send before, me the paper, let us guess. Mm. Before editing, I didn't even have, I turned in my rough draft uh, and got an A and mm, didn't even have to okay. edit it. So gotcha. there you go. So you want us to be impressed by that. It's going to be a terrible episode, but the, the, the paper worked out well. Yeah. <laughs> if you'd rather read the paper, I guess we can send yeah, it to you. Uh, do you email Spencer us if you want the paper, version. and I'll just send that to you. It'll probably be better reading than listening to this podcast episode. But Our first free audio book, uh, Spencer's Paper on Tamar and the Holocaust, and uh, you'll do an audio version of it. That'd be perfect. What a great idea. Me. Nice thought. Good job. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. If you have some ideas that you would like to share with us, uh, 
topics for discussion, things like that. <laughs> we we really just rounded out uh, our discussion on oh several things. Uh, but our last episode was uh, does God send people to hell? If I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of build up to get to that point over uh, four or five six episodes uh, to get there. So uh, if you have suggestions, we're kind of at an in-between point, though we know somewhere places that we want to go. Uh, but if you want to send us those things, our email is strongchurchministries at gmail.com. You can send us those things or your questions or, I guess, requests for written or audio versions of Spencer's podcast. You're going to have to do an audio version now. Okay. Somebody <laughs> please request it so I have to... He's gonna, you're going to make me edit it. Why not? Never mind. Don't request an audio version. I'll please. edit it. Y'all want <laughs> the audio version of my paper. All right. Today, uh, let's go ahead and get into the get into the topic. Dealing with choiceless choices, that's kind of the overall theming, uh, the connecting point of uh, this Holocaust historical event that's more recent uh, in our history. And then you have Tamar, another event that's in history, but much further back. That's the connecting thread is choiceless choices. And then when we bring it into present day and the stuff that we're dealing with, that's also, that's, that's the, the thread, um, having to make a choice, but really being without one. Uh, so, and that's what we're going to see throughout all of these things. Uh, Spencer set some, uh, groundwork for us on choiceless choices here, uh, in the Holocaust specifically. Yeah. So as we've, talked about the kind of what we're doing in this episode is based on a paper that I wrote for a class that I took called reading the Bible after the Holocaust or reading the Bible after the Shoah. So we typically refer to the Holocaust as the Holocaust, but you may not know that Jews actually don't like that term because it means something along the lines of a sacrifice and that can be and come across as offensive uh, to those who were directly or indirectly impacted by the Holocaust. And I think every Jew alive today has been indirectly uh, affected by the Holocaust. You don't have something like that that happens to your group of people without lasting ramifications throughout generations. And so to refer to it as a sacrifice may not be the best term, and so the term Shoah means something along the lines of destruction or catastrophe or something like that, which is probably much more of an adequate term to refer to what happened. Um, so I'll try to use the word Holocaust because I think that's the term that most of us are familiar with. But if you find me using the word Shoah, I'm referring to the same thing. Um but when and so w- what we were doing in this class was reading the old testament through the lens of the holocaust so the holocaust forces us as believers really no matter what religion you're a part of a believer in, in anything uh, to begin to ask questions about ethics about god as we look at you know how could an event like the holocaust happen especially for us as Christians who believe in the God of the, the Bible, how, how do we understand and bring the Holocaust into conversation with Scripture in a way that what 
Scripture teaches us about God doesn't contradict what we actually see going on in the world. Questions of evil, uh, which is, uh, we use the term theodicy, which is questions of asking about God's justice, about God's relation to evil in the world. Hmm. And those kinds of questions are raised by the Holocaust. And so now we have to kind of go to Scripture and try to figure out, well, how, how does Scripture speak to these kinds of questions? And I guess I'm going to go a little bit off script because I wasn't going to get into theodicy, but I changed my mind. Um, go for it. You know, when, when you start thinking about God's relation to evil, you have a question of how could God allow the Holocaust to happen? How could God allow so many people, millions of Jews to be killed for no reason other than being Jewish. I wish we had time to go into the philosophy of Hitler that led to the Holocaust, but we don't have time to do that. But in essence, his belief that Jews weren't fully people, uh, that they were uh, some less important earlier stage of evolution of the human being and their values, particularly their love and forgiveness of people, needed to be squashed out so higher life beings such as the Germans could survive and thrive in the world. And so you kill them all in order to do that. How could God allow that to happen? But then the Holocaust also forces us to grapple with questions of ethics, of what's right and what's wrong. And so what we see in the Holocaust is what have been called choiceless choices. That is, when you think about choices, generally you're choosing between a good thing and a bad thing, or a good thing and a great thing, or the best thing and a great thing or, or, or a good thing. That's generally when we think about choices. In our mind, that's normally what we think is before us. But what the Holocaust shows is sometimes we find ourselves with choiceless choices. Those are choices between bad and bad, or between evil and evil, where no matter what we choose, it's a bad choice. Whatever we choose is morally wrong. Whatever we choose leads to a bad outcome. There's not a good choice. A prime example of how this works in the Holocaust is the famous movie Sophie's Choice. You may or may not have seen it. I'm sure you've at least heard the term. And what happens in the movie, and what actually happened in the Holocaust, is a mother is forced to choose which one of her two children dies. She's forced at an internment camp by Nazis to choose which child dies. That's an example of a choiceless choice. No matter what you choose, it's bad. You choose one child, you choose the other child, maybe you choose not to choose. All of those are bad options. All of those are technically morally wrong options because they all result in because of your choice, somebody dies. You're just mm -hmm. deciding who dies. So it's between bad and bad. It's between evil and evil. And so when we look at the Holocaust and we see people forced to make those kind of choices, what that does is it forces us to ask the question of who's morally responsible. Is the woman in this scenario who has to choose between her two children, is she morally responsible for that choice? 
should we hold her morally accountable for making that choice? And I would assume most of us would say, well, no, right? Well, we're not, you know, it's not like we're going to bring her before a court after the Holocaust and accuse her of war crimes for choosing one child or choosing the other child or not choosing, all of which result in somebody dying. All results in one of her children dying, maybe even both of her children dying if she doesn't choose. Mm. Most of us would probably say, well, no. Let's not hold her morally responsible, and I would agree with that. But if you're going to make that statement, you now have to ask, well, who is? Who do we hold morally responsible? How do we, as Christians, who root our belief and practice in theology and Scripture, how do we go to Scripture and create an ethic, create a morality that lets us say, yeah, we're not going to hold her accountable, and then figure out who does hold moral responsibility? Who would scripture in a situation where a choiceless choice has to be made? Who is held responsible? Who is judged for the actions that have taken place? And so what we're going to do as we move forward is we're going to take these questions posed by the Holocaust and ask them of the story of Tamar, which is a very similar situation uh, to the choiceless choice in examples such as the movie Sophie's Choice. Yeah, so if you've got uh, a Bible with you, it'd be good to open it uh, up to uh, Genesis 38. We'll be in and around uh, that chapter there, but uh, Spencer's going to walk us through Tamar's Choiceless Choice uh, and kind of lay out the background, the context of what all is going on there. This isn't uh, really a chapter that we, I mean, we don't do VBSs about this. <laughs> we're not, uh, this is one of those passages that we're like, uh, this is a rough thing here, but it's in scripture for a reason. Uh, and one of several reasons <coughs> is to ask questions of the text, like we're going to ask it today. So uh, Genesis 38 in and around there, uh, we'll be over that that section there, uh, looking at some of these difficult questions about uh, morality and, and all of that. So uh, Spencer, go ahead and set us up uh, what is going on uh, in Tamar's story, what exactly is happening, and uh, we'll go from there. So as you mentioned, this is not a story that we tell at VBS. It's a story that we leave out of our children's Bibles. Which is interesting because we always, we, we like the story of Joseph, don't we? That's one that we tell our kids. That's one we do VBS over. And the story yep. of yep. Tamar falls right in the middle of the story of Joseph, which is fascinating. You get the first half of Joseph's story, and it ends with Joseph being uh, sold by his brothers to Potiphar. So he's in Egypt, he's sold, and then it stops. You're left in suspense, but what happens to Joseph? And you get Genesis 38, the story of Tamar, and then Genesis 39 opens up with Joseph and Potiphar's wife, and we get the rest of Joseph's story. And we have this weird story of sex and of prostitution and of death and of all kinds of crazy things just put right in the middle of this beautiful story of Joseph. And so the story of Tamar is very brief. It's one chapter. It's chapter 38. It's 30 verses. 
And we never hear about Tamar again. And we get the story of Joseph, this popular character. We get the first half, then this little brief story of Tamar. And then she quickly exits off of the scene. Almost as quickly as her story comes about for us to get to the rest of the Joseph story. And that's what we tend to do when we read Genesis. Because we don't like this story, generally because of what actually happens in it. We, right. But we like Joseph. So if you're reading through Genesis, it's like, well, let, let's read through Joseph and then quickly kind of skip over Tamar to get back to the more popular Joseph story that we like. And we skip over Genesis 38. And when we skip over Genesis 38, not only do we fail to learn from it, but we do injustice to Tamar. There's a reason her really horrific story is told to us. And part of it is that what we see is God bearing witness to her story. We talked about that with uh, the story of Hagar. It would have been easy to leave that out. We wouldn't miss it. And it reflects poorly on the father of the entire Christian story in Abraham. Same thing with Tamar. We, we wouldn't miss this story if you just took it out. But it's here because it gives witness to the story of Tamar. God allows Tamar to speak, if you will, which she is not given that right in the actual story. And I think I said this when we were looking at the story of Hagar. To me, that proves that Scripture is inspired. The willingness of Scripture to tell these stories, the willingness of God to bear witness to the horrible situations that women like Tamar find themselves in through no, through no fault of her own. In Genesis 38, it's going to be the fault of Judah. And it's not only here, I think, for us to get to hear Tamar's story, but it's also here because we can learn something from it. And so I just want to begin by kind of summarizing her story real quick and then illustrating how it connects to this idea of choiceless choices in the Holocaust that we just mentioned. So you've got Judah, one of the brothers of Joseph, and he goes down, he takes a wife, and he has three sons. He marries off the first son, whose name was Ur, to Tamar. That's when Tamar enters the story. As uh, Judah marries, has his first son marry Tamar. Well, Ur is found to be wicked in the sight of the Lord, we're told. And so, God kills Ur. So then Judah gives his second son, Onan, to Tamar. And uh, this is what's called leveret marriage in the Old Testament. And uh, according to the law in the Old Testament, if a man dies without having a male child, without having an heir to carry on the family name, to receive the family inheritance, then the man's oldest brother was then supposed to take his wife, and the first male child they had would actually be the child of the deceased brother would be the child that would carry on the deceased brother's name, would receive the deceased brother's inheritance, and so on and so forth. So that's what we have here. The first brother dies, so the second brother takes Tamar to perform that right, to give Ur, the firstborn, an heir, 
a son to carry on his name to receive his inheritance. But we're actually told that Onan didn't want to have a child for his brother, and so he wouldn't completely go through with the sexual act. God doesn't like that, and so he kills Onan. So Judah's first two sons are dead. Hmm. Judah's left with one son, one son, Shelah. That, that's all he has left. And Shelah should, rightly, according to Old Testament law, have been given to Tamar. But that's not what he does. He promises Tamar, well, at some point I'll give you Shelah, my final son, but he's not yet old enough. So he sends her back to her father and says, that, you know, at some point you'll be able to have my final son, but he has actually no intention of ever giving Tamar his final son. And so what Tamar does, uh, because she's left without a husband, without a male child, uh, son, she dresses like a prostitute and tricks Judah, the father, into sleeping with her, and she becomes pregnant. And through uh, uh, Judah, she has two sons, and the family line is continued. And that's kind of a that's just kind of a brief summary of what happens in Genesis 38. I would actually encourage you, if you're listening to this, to take time just to read all of the story in Genesis 38. And I'm going to reference some specific things here in just a moment. But I I just want to show you how Tamar is forced into a very, very similar situation as victims of the Holocaust that we just talked about. She's forced into this idea, really, of a choiceless choice. After her first two husbands die... And she's sent back to her father with the promise that one day Judah will give Tamar his final son, but with the knowledge that we have that Judah doesn't ever actually intend to do that. Tamar is left as a woman with no husband and no male children, which means that Tamar has no one to provide for her. In the world that she lives in, there's no one to provide any kind of life for her, which really leaves her with two choices. She can either try to make money and survive by being a prostitute. That's really the only line of work she has to go into. Or she can die of neglect. That's really the only two choices that she has. The choice to die or the choice to become a prostitute. Because she has no husband, no male children, and she can't remarry. So she can't gain any of those things because she has to marry Sheila, the final son of Judah, that Judah's never going to give to her. So she can't go off and remarry somewhere else. And so that's what she's left with. And she's left with that choice because of what Judah does. Remember, Judah makes the promise but has no desire to fulfill it. Very similar, again, to those choiceless choices that victims of the Holocaust had to make because of the sins of the Nazis. Uh, Because of the sins of Hitler, they're put in this situation where they have to make a choice between bad and bad. And that's where Tamar finds herself. She's put in this situation where she has the choice between bad and bad. Do I try to live by doing something like prostitution or do I just let myself die? But I'm not in this situation because of my own choice. I'm in it because of what Judah has done. And so we have a very similar situation 
And like with the Holocaust, we're kind of forced to grapple with that and figure out what what do we do with this story? How, how do we think about her choiceless choice? How do we think about God? Because it's interesting, God puts her in this situation because he kills the first two sons. And then he drops out of the story. God only enters the story to take away from Tamar, but never to give Tamar anything. And so who do we blame? Can we blame God? Is God just for what he does? How much blame do we put on Tamar for doing what she does and becoming a prostitute and tricking Judah? How do we think about God? How do we think about Tamar? Which if you notice are the same questions that the Holocaust forces us to ask. How do we think about God And how do we think about these people that are put in situations where they have to make a choiceless choice? Yep. Um, uh, As Spencer said just a moment ago, uh, read through Genesis 38 because that the heart of this, of how do we think about these things, uh, our typical response to that with this particular topic is uh, don't think about it. Skip over it get to the cool Joseph parts, but uh, there is a reason uh, when you have, because this happens, this happens in Genesis more than once and in other places in the Old Testament, these uh, more narrative genre kind of writings where you have a thing that's a story that is happening, like a grander narrative that's going on. And then, uh, excuse me, why is this here? Uh, It's there on purpose, (laughs) even if it seems out of place or weird to us. Uh, It is trying to uh, either inform us of something else that's going on in the surrounding chapters or the bigger picture, or it's meant to be contrasted, compared, juxtaposed, etc. with what's going on. So do not skip over Genesis 38. Take the time to read it. And continuing with this idea of uh, context here, uh, I think we're going to jump into Genesis 37. Is that right, Spencer? Yeah, so we'll, Judah's story begins earlier in Genesis. Also note, yeah. we have questions of sexual ethics with the story of Tamar, which is what Genesis 38 is about, when Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with Joseph. Yeah. Fun fact yeah, about Genesis that story, 39. we're told that Potiphar is like... Uh, guard or something like that. I don't remember the actual uh, term that's used there to refer to. Uh, I have captain of the guard. Yes. Officer. Yeah. Uh, That literally means eunuch, whether or not he was a (laughs) eunuch or not, but potentially. Sure. Maybe the reason Potiphar's wife does that is because um, Potiphar is unable to have sexual relations with her. Which completely changes the way you read that story. That's weird. Um, and you add that to what's going on here in Genesis 37. And you, you get yep. a very interesting... We, we, we may have to follow this up with the talking about Genesis 39 um, and the story of Potiphar's wife. But that completely changes the way you read that story if you read... Yeah, because we read that one because it has Joseph in it. Yeah. And we like Joseph. We're okay with that one. <laughs> um because we think we can, well, J- Joseph's the good guy, and we can make Potiphar's wife terrible. But I would yeah. actually suggest reading that story where Joseph's, uh, where Potiphar's wife, comes off a lot better than 
she typically does. But I want to to emphasize regarding Genesis 38. You know, I, I mentioned Tamar gets put in this situation because of the sins of Judah. She doesn't ever she doesn't do anything wrong to be put in the situation where she has to figure out how am I going to survive without a husband and without a male child. It's because of yeah. what Judah does. Judah makes this promise yes. but never fulfills on it. And what's interesting is n- not only is that just like the Jews in the Holocaust were put in their situation because of the Nazis who have more power than them, right? Judah has the power in Genesis 38, not Tamar. Tamar is forced into this because of Judah and his power. And Judah's sin is really the sin of selfishness that puts Tamar in this situation. And it's just interesting when you read through the story how selfish Judah comes across. Genesis 37. Judah is partly responsible for selling Joseph into slavery. Not a very good look for Judah, right? He's responsible for selling his own brother. Now we get into Genesis 38. What else do we see about Judah? Well, the story opens up with Judah taking a wife who's never given a name in the story and is presented by the narrator as an insignificant character except for sex and procreation in relation to Judah. Uh, It's interesting that the narrator says that Judah saw her and took her. Both, when you read through Genesis, have sexual overtones, or generally words that are used in Genesis uh, to indicate something sexual in nature, which could suggest that Judah's actions are a byproduct of lust. Judah lusts after her, He's the man, so he has the power. So he ta- he sees her, he lusts after her, and so he takes her as his wife, as the one that can fulfill his sexual needs. And that's kind of how she's presented, as she's just kind of like a, a for lack of a better term, a sexual tool for Judah. And as we're going to see, really just to give Judah sons, to give Judah sons that can carry on his name, that can carry on his bloodline. Because that's important in this time, to carry on your name. And we see that when his three sons are born, you'll notice that Judah names the first son, while his wife names the second and third son. And what we see there is that Judah's concern for his sons does not extend past his firstborn heir, who will Mm. be able to carry on his bloodline. So the one who carries on the name who carries on the bloodline, who receives the inheritance as the firstborn son. So Judah takes a wife so that he can have sons. He has three. He names the first one. That's the one he wanted. That's the one that's going to carry on his name. But he doesn't seem to care much about the other two. He lets his wife deal with them and name them. He cares about the first because that's the most important one um, to him. Once, But then once the sons are born... We see Judah's selfishness continue in the form of control of his sons. You'll notice if you read through the story that Judah makes the decision uh, to take a wife for his firstborn heir, Ur, rather than allowing his son to choose for himself. The son doesn't get a choice in who he marries. Judah chooses 
Judah is going to control the procreation of his own bloodline. He's going to take everything into his own hands. And that's when Tamar enters the story as the chosen wife of Ur. And Tamar is just kind of seen as Judah as a way to continue his bloodline. His firstborn son needs a wife because he needs to have male children. And so Judah's going to make all those decisions and do that for his son. And then once the firstborn son is killed by God because of his sin, you'll notice that Judah doesn't grieve. We don't see Judah being sad over his son dying. We're told, in essence, that he immediately just gives Tamar over to his other son uh, so that his second son, Onan, can continue his bloodline through Tamar. Hmm. Um, Judah's callousness in this story towards the life of his son and the previous life of his own brother in Joseph, whom Judah suggests in Genesis 37 that they sell him into slavery, is noteworthy in understanding the character of Judah. Judah takes a wife for sex and for sons. He forces his sons to do what he says to continue his bloodline. They die. He doesn't really seem to care very much. And then it seems that Judah believes that Tamar is at fault for the death of his sons. It seems like that's why he makes the promise of the third but doesn't fulfill it. Which I don't think we can fully blame Judah because if we had two sons who all were killed because after they were married to the same woman, I mean, the woman does seem to be the thing that they have in common. And so, for but for whatever reason, that's what Judah seems to think. Not sure. knowing or at least failing to recognize that his sons were wicked and that's why they were killed. And perhaps Judah's partly at fault for that as the father for not raising and teaching his sons like he should. And so in order again to protect the life of his last son and any hope of a continuing his bloodline, that seems to be what Judah cares about. Continuing his line, continuing his lineage. His first two sons are dead. He has one left. So to protect any hope of continuing his bloodline, he sends Tamar back to her father with that half-hearted promise of a future marriage to his final son, which he has no intention of, of keeping. And so once Tamar is unable to provide what for what Judah wants, Judah's selfish desire, Judah feels no responsibility for her, doesn't really care about her and sends her as far away from him as he mm. can. Um, and then we have Tamar tricking Judah into sleeping with her in order for her to have a male child to survive on and to continue her line. And what's interesting about that is Judah makes a promise uh, to Tamar when she's dressed like a prostitute. Judah doesn't know that it's Tamar. She's disguised herself, but Judah promises her uh, that he will fulfill his promise uh, to her of paying her with a goat. And what's interesting is that Judah's willing to fulfill his promise of a goat to a prostitute, but is unwilling to carry through with his promised son to his own daughter-in-law, which is telling once again of Judah's character. He's more willing to do right by a prostitute than by his own daughter-in-law. Um, but again, it's really more to preserve his personal honor 
Uh, eventually, he sends a servant back to find the prostitute to make the payment. And he tells his servant that he was with a temple prostitute because that reflects a little better on him than just a random prostitute on the side of the road. And so he, he's just he, he's concerned throughout this whole story with himself, with his bloodline, yeah. Yeah. which what with what he can get out of it. And then once Tamar's pregnancy comes to line, uh, to, to light, Judah wants to kill her. If you remember before when she can't provide him with an heir, with someone to continue his bloodline, he doesn't care about her. But as soon as she's found pregnant out of wedlock, which reflects poorly on Judah, all of a sudden Judah wants to exercise his right over her as his daughter-in-law and to kill her. For what she's done, even though he did the the exact same thing because he did it with her, right? His sin doesn't matter. Tamar doesn't matter until she starts reflecting poorly on him. And then even at the very end of the story, where it's revealed that Judah was the one who has impregnated Tamar, Judah declares that Tamar is more righteous than him, that he is in the wrong and Tamar is in the right. But you'll notice Hmm. that he makes that confession to other people to save face within his community, but he never actually says it to Tamar. And so we could assume that Tamar never actually hears Judah's admission of guilt. And you'll also notice that Judah's confession is for guilt and not giving Tamar his final son, not for the other things that he did, not for his other mistreatment, not for sleeping with her, not for wanting to kill her, but just, hey, yeah, I messed up in not giving you my son, but I'm not going to admit to these other things. And the story ends with Tamar giving birth to two sons, but the text tells us that Judah did not lie with her or did not know her again. And the Hebrew euphemism for sex is to know. And it's interesting if you trace that idea of knowing throughout the chapter. Judah did not care to know Tamar when he considered her useless for for perpetuating a family lineage, useless for giving him an heir. He did not care to know her or to even look at her face when he was having sex with her thinking that she was a prostitute. And now after giving him children and a bloodline, the thing that Judah's wanted over the entire story, we're told that Judah does not desire to know her again. He doesn't care to know Tamar unless it reflects good on him, unless it provides him with something. And so a Mm -hmm. woman like Tamar, who's willing to stand up for herself, to call out the the wickedness of Judah and to take hold of what she needs to survive is of no use, is of no desire for Judah, because such a woman cannot be controlled or used by Judah for selfish gain, which is how he's presented through this entire story. And I say all that because I think it highlights how Judah's selfishness from the very beginning in marrying his wife to the very end and his unwillingness to know Tamar except for how she provides things for him illustrates how Judah's power and control as the male head of the household coupled with his evil selfishness, I think would be a right term, is what leads Tamar to have to make this choice to become a prostitute and to trick him in order to survive. 
because it's either that or die. And so Judah's, I mean, Tamar is forced to make this choice because of the sin, the wickedness, the evil, the selfishness of Judah, who has all of the control throughout the story, control over his wife, control over his sons, control over Tamar, which again is very similar to what we see in the Holocaust with the Nazis having all of the power and putting Jews in situations where they have to make very similar decisions to what Tamar is forced to make in Genesis 38. Yeah. And uh, don't rush into Genesis 39 just yet, though I think you're right. We should do a follow-up into this, but the conversations about who's in control and selfishness and selflessness and all of those things. So wait two weeks and then get into... Genesis 39. In the meantime, um, yeah, this is a pretty intense, uh, pretty intense narrative here. Um, It holds, uh, as you said at the beginning, a lot of power in letting Tamar speak through text this way, uh, in sharing this uh, account for us to be reading, you know, all these years later. Uh, but it also holds uh, some significance to Joseph's story, uh, as well as uh, Judah and who he is and some of the things that come into play, because do recall we are dealing with uh, the—we're we're dealing with a tribal leader of you know, part of Abraham's line here, Judah. Uh, they're going to be a big-picture group of people uh, going throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and this is where they find— uh, some of their root here is in this individual. And uh, we, uh, you, you said maybe we can blame him, maybe he's not entirely to blame for the sons and all of this stuff, uh, but he certainly shares some part of that. Uh, and both your sons come out wicked, who knows about son number three. Uh, but what does that say about the people that are going to extend from Judah uh, mm-hmm. based on what we know out of of him in this narrative here as well. Uh, so another reminder of why it's important to stop and look at these, especially the texts that just come out of nowhere, uh, seemingly to us uh, as readers. There's a reason that they are there, uh, a very good reason that they are there uh, in the midst of a bigger story that's going on uh, around them. Uh, and it continues to speak to uh, speak to us all these years later, uh, not just in Holocaust connection, but also in questions that we face in our day today about God and uh, other ethical, moral questions and things like that. Uh, Spencer, how do we how do we tie all these pieces together here uh, at the end into a into a conclusion? Yeah, so we're we're left with some questions that we need to answer. Uh, The first is that question of theodicy about God, right? God only shows up in the story to take from Tamar, uh, to take the life of her first two husbands, which is part of the reason she gets into the predicament that she's in. So we have a question of how do we understand God? And then we have the question of how do we understand Tamar? How should we think about Tamar's choice to dress like a prostitute trick Judah into having sex with her in order to survive, right? And we understand that choice in light of 
Tamar is put in this situation not because of her own choices, but because of the sinfulness and selfishness of Judah. Which is why we spent so much time showing that. Like, it's not just, yeah, Judah makes a couple of bad choices. No, Judah's presented in Genesis 38 as a horrible human being. I mean, there's no yeah. way around that. It's at every turn, Judah only cares about himself. That's Judah is just presented as a terrible person. And because of that, Tamar finds herself in this predicament. And so there's a couple of things uh, that I want to say about that. Um, and the first is, is that however you want to view Tamar's actions, if, if you want to completely release Tamar and say, well, she's not culpable for what she does, or if you want to hold Tamar responsible and say, yeah, she shouldn't have done that, Whatever you want to think about Tamar's actions, the bulk of guilt or the bulk of judgment in this story has to fall upon Judah. It's yeah. Judah's sins that place Tamar in the situation that forces her to do what she does. It's because of the sins of Judah that Tamar finds herself in a situation where the only thing she thinks that she can do to survive is to trick Judah into sleeping with her by dressing like a prostitute. So whatever you want, however much guilt you want to put on Tamar, the vast majority has to be put on Judah for creating the situation that led to Tamar doing what she does. That's what happened in the Holocaust, right? We, we don't want to put blame on those who had to make the choiceless choice. We want to blame right. Hitler. We want to blame the Nazis, for creating an environment that forced people to make such choices. And believe it or not, that still happens in our world today. We live in a world where the sins of other people, the sins of people in power, uh, whether that be power in a family, power in a group, power in a business, power in the church, whatever it is, that the sins of people who are in power, who are in control, as well as institutional sins, sins that can't be tied to one person but exist within society, exist within institutions. I think of things like poverty. I think of things like racism and sexism and ageism that we can't blame one person for those things that are existing. They're just sins that pervade society, sins that pervade institutions, sins that really pervade the world, always have, and probably to some extent always will. Those kinds of sins, whether in individuals in power or in institutions and societies, which are themselves power structures, right? We, to a very high degree, or at the mercy of the society and the institutions that we're a part of, because they act upon us, they influence us, they teach us things whether we want them to or not. And it's the sins that exist in these institutions and societies, these sins that exist in people, that people in power, that lead other people into similar choiceless choices as the Jews in the Holocaust or Tamar in Genesis 38. Because these people and these institutions create similar environments where people are forced to choose between bad and bad. 
And so I think what that does is first, it forces us not to develop a black and white ethic where here is what is always right and here is what is always wrong because the world exists in the gray in between those two poles where we find people like Tamar, we find people like the Jews in the Holocaust who make decisions that we would probably all agree are morally wrong, but yet we don't want to hold them morally responsible because it's not their fault. It's people in power, it's institutions that have created an environment that forced people to make these choices. I think it also forces us to hold back judgment, at least initial judgment on people because of sins and mistakes that they've made and ask bigger questions of what led them to do this. Maybe it was them just making the decision and saying, I want to do this, but maybe not. And I think I would actually argue the vast majority of the time, probably not. There's probably, even if they hold some blame, and maybe we want to say that about Tamar, she holds some blame, but not all of it, not the bulk of it. A lot of the times, maybe we want to look at people and say, yeah, they still made that decision. So yes, they still hold a little bit of the blame, but there are things higher up. There are bigger things at work that are more to blame for what happens. And I think that falls a little bit under, you know, when we say love the the sinner, hate the sin, that there's something bigger at play, more sinister than just a bad person. There's sin that is involved. And I think when we realize that it also forces us as the church to stand against sin that pervades power, that pervades institution, that pervades society. Too often we want to stand against sin in individuals' lives and say, well, you are a sinner. You are bad because you've done this, this, and that. And we fight against saying that sin can exist in some of these higher power structures that can put people in situations that lead them to make these decisions. And I think when we read the story of Tamar, when we look at the Holocaust, it forces us as Christians to say, no, we need to stand not only against sin in individuals' lives, as followers of Jesus were called to a higher way of living, But to obtain that higher way of living, we have to stand against sin that pervades the wider world that we live in, sin that pervades the societies and institutions that we're a part of. We don't change the world. We don't change our lives by just focusing on sin on the individual level. We have to also focus it on the corporate cosmic level. That's what scripture does. It's what Jesus did, and I, I think that's what we're called um, to do. And so I kind of want to, we're going to end in in, in two ways. I'll end real quick by asking a question and leave it open-ended. And then I'll kind of open it up uh, to uh, for Jack to make his uh, closing comments. And then we'll close, close. I'll read the conclusion, the concluding paragraph of the paper that I wrote because I, it, it's a good way to kind of summarize and conclude everything we've yep. been talking about. But yep. we're still left with the question of how should we view Tamar's actions? Because it's interesting, Tamar is never condemned in Genesis 38. We're never told that we should think negatively about what she does. To the contrary, Judah at the end actually says that she is righteous for what she has done, at least more righteous than he is. 
And if I'm being honest, I don't quite know what to do that with that. But I kind of want to leave that in your mind in the context of institutional sin, sin in people in power, this idea of choiceless choices. Because it's interesting, I like what one commentator said about Tamar, that she goes beyond the law, she breaks the law to fulfill the law. Because Judah was supposed to provide her with a son, and Judah doesn't. And to fulfill the law, Tamar breaks the law. Because of Tamar breaking the law, the line of Abraham continues. We eventually get David, and ultimately we get Jesus, as Tamar shows up in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. So it's because of what Tamar does that all of these other things come out, which I think there's some application there of how even in the worst part of our lives, even in the biggest mistakes that we make, the horrible things that we go through, not that God wants those things to happen to us or wants us to do those things, but how God can turn anything, even a Genesis 38, And he can use it for his glory because Genesis 38 ultimately leads us to Matthew. It leads us to Jesus. It leads us to the gospel. It leads us to salvation. And it's just amazing how God is able to transform those things and use them for his glory. But like I said, we're still left with, in light of that, how do we think of what Tamar does? And I kind of want to just leave it at that because I don't quite know what to do with the fact that She's never condemned and actually heralded as righteous at the end of the story. Mm. And uh, just kind of leave that there in the context of these bigger things. And just, I think we just need to dwell in that gray area, dwell in that mystery of Genesis 38 while realizing our call to call out sin on a more cosmic level. And realizing how God can use even events such as Genesis 38 and even when Genesis 38 happens in our own lives and use that for his glory. Yeah. Uh, if, if, you've got, if you've got answers you feel to this uh, question of how should we view Tamar's actions, we'd love to hear what you think, uh, what you would do with that. Um, though I do want to uh, reiterate what Spencer said there of just uh, just sit in the discomfort of the in-between, the black and white. Uh, just kind of sit there with it and uh, realize there may not be, a, uh, that there isn't a clear-cut answer uh, and that you may just have to be uncomfortable for a little while. Uh, allow yourself to be in Genesis 38 for a while uh, before you move on and go into other parts of Genesis and the stories that you enjoy. Uh, what, like I said at the top of the episode, if you've got uh, criticisms, comments, questions, or suggestions for things you might like us to cover in the future, you can email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com or get a hold of us on Facebook. I forgot to mention Spencer's Twitter, but he's there too uh, if you want to get a hold of him there. Uh, and uh, we'll, just, we'll just end with uh, Spencer reading from believe this is the final paragraph of your uh your paper and all of that so and then the then the musical will take us away so uh listen to how spencer closed up this whole thing uh in the gray area about the holocaust and tamar uh, and choiceless choices so i ended yeah i i ended my paper like this 
While Tamar's story may be a brief stroke across Genesis' canvas, it does not end at Genesis 38 and verse 30, but at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3, where Tamar's name appears in the genealogy of Jesus, the Savior of the world. While God appears rather absent from Genesis 38, could it rightly be claimed that God does eventually redeem Tamar's story through the birth of a Savior? Is this, perhaps, the way God brings redemption to the trauma of the Holocaust and even our own trauma? Could we neither affirm nor deny God's action or inaction in such trauma as to neither validate the oppressors nor invalidate the victims, while maintaining that even within unexplainable horrors such as the Holocaust, God can still work in the aftermath for redemption? Can we proclaim that, even in stories with uncertain beginnings and endings, that God is still, somehow, present, suffering with the oppressed, and working towards ultimate redemption.